In the Name of Overhead Athletics podcast, where we cover rehabilitation, biomechanics, human movement, and optimizing human performance. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Max Wardell. I'm your host today. I'm actually joined by a pretty prolific researcher in baseball. Um, she's the Secretary General of the ABBS, and she has a PhD in kinesiology and biomechanics. Dr. Hillary Plummer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Max. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to our discussion today. Yeah, absolutely. Me as well. And I'm looking at a lot of the stuff that you put out. You put out a lot of great research, and I know that I wanted to be a member of the American Baseball Biomechanics Society a year and a half ago, and you were kind of the one that was orchestrating all of that stuff. How did you get involved in baseball research and softball research as well? So I grew up playing softball and baseball, so it's always been kind of a passion of mine. Um, you know, when I was going through school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do as an undergrad. I knew I wanted to work with athletes, either as maybe an athletic trainer or physical therapist. Um, kind of decided to do the athletic training route um, after I did some PT shadowing. I was like, I really like the hands-on aspect of athletic training, being with the athlete as soon as they're injured through the completion to the time they return to play. Um, so I ended up going to get a master's in athletic training at the University of Arkansas. And when I got there, our clinical coordinator had just gotten a motion capture system. It was like, hey, you're, you know, your background in baseball and softball, this might be something that interests you. So she invited me to a data collection, and you know, the rest is history. I fell in love with it, and I was like, this is exactly what I want to do. You, know, you can use this technology to help you know, answer some of the questions that we're seeing clinically of why people are getting injured um, at the shoulder and the elbow, or you know, how do we improve some of the um, rehab that's done or you know, prevention-type programs that are done. And being able to use that data to answer those questions was just you know, something that I really enjoy doing. So. Uh, she ended up convincing me to get a PhD, and you know, been going at, going after it ever since. So it's been it's been a lot of fun. I like to see people with a clinical background in um, research and in biomechanics, especially athletic training, physical therapy, because I think it gives you a different perspective than other people who are going into research, especially people who've only been in a lab or or have only seen athletes and this kind of limited capacity as compared to seeing them on the field, seeing them when they're injured, um, and actually working on enhancing either performance or um, performance in some in some way to get them back on the field. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely something more clinicians should consider doing, you know, as, as a PhD, we're, I'm always looking for, you know, physical therapists or athletic trainers who are currently working in the field to, you know, help come up with some of the questions, like what are you guys seeing on a regular basis in the clinic that can help you know, me formulate research questions. So that's always something I'm open to if anybody, you know, wants to collaborate. Um, I think there's a lot of, a lot of researchers that, you know, really value the PT, AT experiences that, you know, you guys deal with on a daily basis. I'm not in the field anymore, but, you know, I'm strictly research, but, you know, I love, love talking to PTs and athletic trainers and getting their perspective on everything they're seeing. So let's talk a little bit about some of the research you've done. Um, Interestingly enough, you've done some research on hip motion um, in correlation to injury risk and different things like that. Let's go. Let's dive into that a little bit because obviously, how the pelvis moves and how much rotational capacity the hip joints have is a, an important factor in 
I guess, mitigating injury, but also in potentially getting your body into the right positions in the throw to allow you to throw as fast as possible. Right, definitely. So we recently published a study in IJSPT looking at the effects of hip range of motion on pelvis and trunk kinematics during pitching. We took uh, 25 healthy high school baseball pitchers who are approximately 16 years old. Uh, We measured their passive hip internal and external rotation uh, range of motion using a digital inclinometer. And we also calculated their total range of motion, so adding their internal and their external um, to get their total range of motion, similar to what we do uh, with the shoulder. Um, So we collected 3D kinematics, and we had the pitchers throw four-seam fastballs. we then ha- did some simple linear regressions to just to just see what you know associations there were between the hip rotation and their um, pelvis and trunk kinematics at foot contact of the pitch. So we also looked at stride length as well because um, we know that your hip motion is going to have an effect on how far you can stride out. If you have any type of deficits in hip motion, then you're not going to be able to maybe stride out as far as you need to. And, you know, it was really interesting. We only found one significant association in the hip range of motion in kinematics. Um, We found that the drive leg, so your back leg, um, if it had less internal rotation or had a decrease in internal rotation, then um, you also had a decreased uh, trunk rotation angle at stride foot contact. So what does this mean? You had less rotation, rotation to the trunk, less trunk rotation at this foot contact position, and you know that may be um, something that you know is potentially bad down the road as far as looking at the kinetics of the shoulder. If you're not in the proper, if you don't have the proper trunk position, um, or you rotate your trunk too soon towards home plate, then that's going to cause your throwing arm to lag behind your body, which we know from previous research can increase the forces at the shoulder and the elbow. So you have to have sufficient drive leg internal rotation to support proper trunk mechanics at foot contact. And, you know, we're hoping to expand on this research and, you know, look more at some of the forces and if some of these pitchers that do have decreased uh, hip internal rotation of their drive leg, if they go on to sustain any type of injuries, you know, farther down the road. And and I like I like this because, you know, the tough thing for us, though, is as clinicians – it's like we have this information, hey, we, we got to increase hip internal rotation. And that's something that a lot of these guys can do. The tough thing for us is you're dealing with a lot of times mechanical impingement where these guys just, they have cam deformities, pincer deformities. They, they can't actually internally rotate the hip. And if they're at three degrees of hip internal rotation now, if we get them to 10 degrees, that may be their, that may be their arthrological limit. But that seven degrees can actually make a huge uh, huge difference potentially in, in how they throw. So I'm interested kind of what's the next step. So you're going to look at some kinetics with that. Um, you know, in terms of is there any sort of plans or, or what do you think about like looking at some of this stuff from a, from a more uh, long-term perspective of like, okay, let's just we, – we know that they're going to be more open when they land. Let's just take and – hey, these – 35 guys right here, they all have limited hip internal rotation. Let's just track them throughout their career and do a little bit of a epidemiological study. Yeah, definitely. And I think you hit on a great point about, you know, looking at the people that have the cam deformities or other type of, you know, structural issues that they're in their hip that are preventing some of the, them from getting the necessary range of motion. Because, you know, I'm sure you see this a lot. Like, 
you have a hitter that's got some sort of cam deformity or something that's limiting their hip range of motion and then they go on to develop, you know, low back pain or spondylolisthesis or something like that. Um, so that's definitely a study I, I've wanted to look at is getting some, you know, patients from the clinic in that have some deformity and seeing, you know, tracking them longitudinally and seeing if we do, can we increase the range of motion like you said and, you know, what does that, what effect is that having on their uh, pelvis and trunk mechanics as they either pitch or hit. So that's definitely something that's interesting and I think, you know, just tracking hip range of motion across the season, seeing how it changes um, and are, are people that have decreased hip range of motion, are they going on to get injured during the season? Is that potentially yep. an injury risk factor that really we haven't, no one's really studied, which is kind of surprising, but I think the literature's definitely starting to move that direction. I think everybody's realizing, you know, it's not just shoulder range of motion anymore. It's we've got to take, take a kinetic chain approach. We've got to look at the lower extremity and what's happening there. Um, looking at hip strength is something that hasn't really been done as well. So if they have decreased range of motion as well as decreased strength, is that a problem? And how's that contributing to their pitching mechanics? Yeah, I, I like what you're saying there, which is look at the strength as well as the range of motion because you may you may have this guy that has phenomenal range of motion, but actually in the throw, he displays the same path as the other guy where his hip drops and he immediately opens towards the uh, the target. And he net, he you know he's landing either in a compromised position or he's moving through a compromised position as he as he accelerates his arm. Right, definitely so. Definitely a lot of great things that still need to be done from a research perspective. Yeah, and, and like talking about research just in general, because I look at it from a very different perspective um, as somebody who's working with individual athletes all the time. And this is something I caution a lot of people. It's like we have a lot of great research. Okay, hip internal rotation deficits on your drive leg can potentially increase your risk of injury. But what about hip internal rotation on the landing leg? So the research would say maybe there's not really some sort of, um, I guess, great correlation there. But then my point to everybody is you still have to look at the individual athlete because if that athlete strides across his body, which we know can be a risk factor for shoulder injury, we've seen that panned out in the research. So he's striding across his body seven inches, and then he also has hip internal rotation deficit. Maybe he just... Uh, summated those two uh, risk factors there. Right, definitely. And you know, that's one of the things, if you go and you look at some of the um, injury risk type studies that are out there, one of the things I really caution clinicians, you know, to look into is that, you know, a lot of times there are athletes that will have deficits in some motion, whether it's shoulder internal rotation, it's hip motion, it's hip strength, shoulder strength but they don't get injured. So it's not like a lot of this research isn't saying, hey, just because you have this one deficit, you're going to get hurt. It is an individual, you take it on a case-by-case -case basis because not everybody gets hurt. And the one, the one important thing that I think we definitely want to stress is that uh, this type of research is really what we've needed in baseball for a long time because we have so much research and it's easy. To, it's easier to do, there's no doubt, on pitch counts and playing a position and going into pitch and we've identified hey that you may be at risk for injury if you catch before you pitch or catch after you pitch and if you throw over 75 pitches on this day and this day you may be at increased risk of injury and all that stuff's important but also we need the kinematic and the kinetic uh studies that are being done the biomechanics studies that are going to say all right 
this is, you know, here's some potentially pathological things, or here are some things that are going to risk uh, your athletes if you're if you're doing it in this manner, or here are some physical limitations like you've done here. Um, but let's move on to the shoulder and say, okay, looking at shoulder range of motion, I thought this was one of the most interesting things, um, you know, just perusing through your uh, research gate or your uh, Google Scholar there. It's like looking at shoulder range of motion, various age groups and internal rotation deficits and those sorts of things. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we did a study. It's, it's actually been, you know, we've collected the data probably six or seven years ago and it just now just now getting it published, but okay. we looked at um, about, how many did we have? We had quite a few athletes. They were, we divided them into groups. So we had a, um, I think seven groups, 12 and under, so 11 and 12 year olds, 14 and under, which was 13 and 14 year olds. We had um, two high school groups. We split them up to the 15 and 16 year olds versus the 17 and 18 year olds. Then we had college. Um, we had two professional groups. Uh, professional group one was 17 to 22 years old. Professional group two was 23 and older. Um, we really wanted to see, you know, how is shoulder range of motion different between these groups? And um, while we didn't, you know, collect this data longitudinally, it was just a cross-sectional study. Um, you know, we, we found some interesting things. We hypothesized that the collegiate and professional players and the pitchers would have a higher prevalence of humoral internal rotation deficit and total arc of motion differences compared to youth due to the more cumulative pitching over their careers. Um, but really, we didn't, we didn't really end up seeing that. So the most important finding we found was that range of motion had little variation among the competition levels. Um, we did see that internal rotation of the throwing shoulder was significantly less in the 12 and under and 14 year and under pitchers compared to 15 and 16 year olds and the pro pitchers. Uh, 12 and under pitchers also had less internal rotation than the college pitchers. Uh, there was a mean difference of about 10.3 degrees. And then when looking at the total arc of motion, um, it was also significantly less for the 12 and under and the 14 and under pitchers compared to the 15 and 16 year olds. Um, and the 14 and under group of pitchers also had the highest prevalence of GERD that was greater than 20 degrees between arms. And 70% of the 12 and under and the older pro pitchers had uh, total arc of motion differences greater than uh, 5 degrees. So what I guess kind of some of our conclusions were that the repetitive eccentric, eccentric contractions of the posterior musculature during the throw can lead to, we know it can lead to tightness of the posterior inferior capsule um, and contracture there. And it may have contributed to the loss of internal rotation that we observed. Um, it's also possible that the difference in internal rotation was due to, you know, the relatively small sample size of participants in each age group. That was a limit, big limitation of the study. Um, but again, this was more of a this was more of a pilot study in that regard. We wanted to just see, you know, hey, we have all this data on these athletes. You know, wh what do we see initially? Um, a lot of the research for shoulder range of motion is moving into using ultrasound to look at uh, the humeral head and retroversion. Um, so that's something that you know still needs to be done and could also explain some of the differences. You know, is it a bony morphology issue or is it truly you know, posterior muscle contracture, ligament contracture, things like that? Yeah, that's. I, I thought that one was interesting from my perspective because it's not what I expected to see. Um, you know, I definitely would have expected to see the the college guys, the pro guys, have more of an internal rotation deficit. And looking at 
the young guys, there could be a lot of things going on in my mind. Um, what were kind of some of your hypotheses? Like, do you think it's all, um, you know, soft tissue in these young guys? Do you think that, um, because we know that they're starting to get some humeral torsion and they should have a, a decent amount if they throw a decent amount by that age. So it, could it be their growth plates are, are open and maybe they have more, uh, more humeral torsion than when it ossifies in a few years? Or I mean, I don't, I don't even know, but I'm guessing, what, what are you thinking there? I'm thinking maybe soft tissue. You know, a lot of these younger guys, they don't have access to athletic trainers or physical therapists that can, you know, track their range of motion as they're, you know, pitching throughout the season. And, you know, we've now moved to a lot of people are playing year-round, which we know is is definitely an injury risk factor. But, you know, potentially it's because, you know, they're, they have GERD and they're losing some of that internal rotation and they're continuing to pitch without doing any type of, you know, preventative measures that could improve their soft tissue. So I think... You know, we really don't know without, you know, more data. This is more of a starting point right now. But, you know, I think there's a lot of things that need to be addressed. And, you know, the pro pitchers, the college pitchers, we know that they're being tracked. Um, Their range of motion is being measured on a regular basis. You know, kids don't have that. And maybe that's something that, you know, we need to provide resources to, you know, big youth baseball groups so that they can, you know, have this data and we can better track. Um, the athletes. I'm 100% with you on that. We had 80 little guys run through yesterday, eight years old to 13 years old. And there was a I was talking to a physician assistant yesterday as well, who works with a lot of shoulders. And he said the most astounding thing to him was in virtually every injured pitcher under the age of 16, they all had massive internal rotation deficits. And he said their total arc is decreased. And I said, yeah, I see it. I see it every day. And my, my kind of question is, in my mind, these guys are, are definitely not getting – they don't have access to the athletic trainer. They don't have access to the physical therapist in the way in which that our collegiate and pro guys do. And maybe they won't for the next – five years, four years, six years, eight years, whatever it is. So what happens over the course of that time? Do they eventually just start stretching and and get some range of motion? Does it kind of come back and normalize a little bit in the off season? That's a good, uh, that's a good question in my mind, because what I see all the time, and I don't know, um, what your thoughts are on this is I see guys that get really weak they get a lot of deficits and internal rotation. Um, and then they go through the course of the season, they go into the next season, and they already are at a huge deficit in total arc, and they're already weak. And then they're start at the start of the season, and then they're a huge risk factor for injury. Right. And you know, then do they suffer a UCL injury, and eventually their playing career ends? You know, who knows? I mean, but that is a big gap from you know eight-year-old to you know, 15, 16, when they're starting to get into high school, would have access to an athletic trainer. So it's definitely something we need to look into. And, you know, how can some of these big companies that contract out athletic trainers to, you know, middle schools, high schools, can are there programs that can be developed to, you know, reach some of these younger kids um, before it gets, before they get to high school and it becomes a big problem that you're, you know, starting behind the eight ball, so to speak, then, you have so many deficits you need to correct that it's just not feasible. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
Now, if you notice this, because I notice this sometimes in just in what I do, but if you notice that, like, there's any sort of pushback to results of you know research in terms of like we have almost in in baseball where there's a lot of antiquated or um i guess the the old guard so to speak in in that like hey this is how pitching has to be done you got to reach your arm back as far as you can you know those sorts of things and i'll notice it at times um on the internet which is like hey you know this is how baseball has been done for a hundred years and you're in the research community, but I also know that you're putting, you know, putting stuff on, on the internet as well. Um, have you noticed any of that stuff or, or what's kind of our, our, um, solution to that sort of thing, uh, in the baseball community? Cause this is the type of, uh, the type of data and the type of information that, that we definitely need. Right. Um, you know, I work with a lot of the younger guys, so it's not, I don't tend to get as much pushback, but you definitely know that. You know, biomechanics is starting to get big at the professional level. Teams are all starting to hire biomechanists. So I'm sure yep. there is. You know, I've heard of people saying, yeah, there's some pushback between the old guard at times and trying to you know, figure out how you work with the old guard versus implementing some of this new data and technology that's available. Um, so, I mean, I have heard people talk about that. But I think it's becoming you know, more and more accepted that you know, athletes these days, when they get to the pro and college levels, they expect to have data. They want to have data. Um, they want to be able to use that data to improve their performance or prevent injury. So I think, you know, as the years, as, as we continue to progress along, I think it's going to become more accepted. I think coaches are going to start to, you know, learn more about how they can use the data effectively. Um, and I think once, you know, people see that, hey, this data is very helpful, it can improve the athlete, then I think you start to get a little bit more buy-in from some of the, you know, the old guard that's a little bit resistant to change. Yeah, and it, I think it definitely is that, which is, it's it's sometimes just an educational thing, which is, hey, here's here's what we're talking about. Let's kind of narrow it down. This is really what we're what we're talking about. We're not talking about changing all these other things. It's, we're looking at this specifically, and and that's not to be any sort of any sort of knock on what what you may say is the more old school coaches, because I I think that there's a lot of good stuff that we can take from that as well, even in terms of how we're going to choose our research moving forward or the, fill the gaps where there is no research. I think that's the biggest thing. And, you know, that's a lot of people's um, perspective is there's a lot of the, – the research may create a net, but we got to fill those holes in the net. Right, definitely. And I think a lot of that is, too, like being able – as a biomechanist, being able to generate reports that coaches can understand and figure right. out how they – how they best interpret some of this data. Do you need to make different graphs, some, you know, skeletal models of, you know, different phases of the pitch? Was that enough that they can see that, hey, we're getting all this data in like one second of the pitch, we can see all these things. How can they use that? And, you know, a lot of, in my past experience, you know, working with the coaches has been so fulfilling. did a lot of work with um, some of the Auburn softball coaches when I was there. And, you know, I learned so much from them. And like you said, it's how do we develop some great research questions. I think some of the best studies we did was because we got ideas from the coaches. They're like, well, we see this, but we have no idea why why it's occurring. So I think that's going to, you know, I think that's starting to, you know, leak into some of the professional environments. It's starting to, you know, become, you know, everybody wants to figure out how how they can use some of this data to improve performance. Even if it's just a little bit, then 
you know, the returns can be great. Yeah. Let's take a little dive on that note. Let's take a little dive into throwing intensity and how that can potentially alter how an athlete throws. So I know you've done some research on this, um, and it's always uh, an interesting an interesting discussion because you'd have a lot of people that say you need to throw at 100% intensity, you need to throw as fast as you possibly can um, to really get a realistic idea of how exactly someone throws and that throwing at a slow speed is not specific to throwing at a fast speed. But I also have, you know, the opposite perspective, which is with injured athletes, you don't have the you don't have the ability to actually have them throw at a high intensity because they're limited um, just based on uh, either where they're at post-surgery or they get pain when they throw at a higher intensity. So I'm interested to hear what are your perspectives and, and, and really what should we kind of take from the research, if you will, um, on throwing intensity and how throwing intensity changes over the over the course of increasing intensity. Yeah, definitely. You know, there's really not a whole lot of you know literature out there on on this topic. Um, did a little bit of work with team handball athletes, and you know, I think Glenn Fleissing at ASMI has done some work too, just looking at the ability of uh, pitchers to you know judge how hard they're throwing. So if you tell them to throw. 50%, how does that compare on the radar gun to their max velocity? And basically what we find is, you know, pitchers aren't able to judge, you know, how hard they're throwing. They, you can tell them throw as hard as you can, okay, but then how do you say throw 75%, throw 55%? I think that becomes a big challenge. And it's definitely for you guys who are doing a lot of work with, like, throwing programs, how do you monitor that load and intensity that they're throwing at? Um, we know that if, you know, some pitchers, especially at the younger ages, you tell them to go throw as hard as you can, then they're going to just, their mechanics are going to be terrible. They're only throwing to the radar gun, trying to get the highest amount possible that they can get. So, you know, what do their mechanics look like? Terrible. So, I mean, that's something that we, we're always cognizant about whenever we bring pitchers into the lab. We try to say, you know, throw like you would throw into a game, throw in a game. Don't try to overthrow because we know you're going to your mechanics are going to change if you're trying to throw it too high of an intensity that you're not used to. Um, so I think those are kind of the big things. But I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that area as well. And that goes as far as like research that's been done with throwers. If you have college throwers and pro throwers and they're throwing at 60 miles an hour or 65 miles an hour in, in the research, what we can take from the research is going to be very different than what we can kind of glean from it if, if they're throwing at 100% intensity where they're throwing 89, 90 miles an hour, that sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's kind of where some of these new markerless motion capture systems come in. You know, a lot of people are putting them in at the college and pro levels have markerless motion capture systems in their stadium. So now, you know, we're taking this a step, our research a step further. And you're saying that, you know, you're not just in a lab environment where everything's controlled. Now we can start to look at mechanics, um, you know, during games, like what happens when, you know, the stress is going to increase when you have runners on base, you're trying to keep them from scoring. Um, you know, do your mechanics change during certain points of the game? I think that's going to be something that's, you know, really interesting that I hope somebody at the college level will publish. I know pros, pros never get, pros are never going to let that data out, but you know, no, there's, no. there's a lot that can be done hopefully at the college level that hopefully people are actually looking at that. We may never, you and I may never know the answer, but you know, it's definitely something that's intriguing that you hope maybe markerless motion capture, you know, 
becomes more affordable, people can start uh, you know, looking at some of these things in a more structured, research-based way, but we can still get really good data of saying, you know, what's happening in the games? What's happening if, you know, the intensity increases, the cognitive workload increases? Do we see different motor patterns that occur? So I think there's so much that, you know, needs to be done that I think markerless motion capture can really help, you know, bridge the gap in the future. In 50 years, uh, when you decide you're moving to Florida and you're not, uh, you're not doing any research and I'm, and I'm done working with athletes, everybody will probably have a markerless motion capture in their, in their house for their 10-year-old, uh, 10-year-old baseball or softball player. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy how much things have advanced already, honestly. I know. I mean, people, people ask me, like, how much experience do you have with markerless? I'm like, this didn't exist when I was finishing up my PhD. Like, this is... You know, it's awesome, but, like, it's changed so much in the past just five or six years, so I can't even imagine 50 years from now. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's interesting to think about because, um, I, I mean, even when I was pitching in college, which was very recent, like, I don't even remember, like, anybody even taking a, a video of me. The only video that got taken of me throughout high school and college was just – to center like college coaches for recruiting purposes. Like there was no, not even video analysis done um, or anything like that. Nothing. No, now people are, you know, film with their cell phone and you can get decent, you know, decent yeah. video with a cell phone. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And even like what, six years ago, the, the cell phones would give you like, what 30 frames per second or something <laughs> it's like the throw looked like a it looked like one uh image throughout the like if you paused it halfway through and now it's like 240 and I, i've even seen some phones that have like 360 or 480 frames per second so which is awesome for me you know because yeah, then great. i just take my phone yeah. out and do a little do a little videotaping yeah. yeah i think you know i i think you're definitely right which is all of this stuff that's that's kind of on the forefront is, is really exciting, especially, and, and I think it should be especially exciting for for coaches um, who can take a lot of this and start to practically apply it. And that's what I, you know, what I like to do is really start to take a lot of stuff like what you're doing and what a lot of the other people are doing, and say, all right, how are we going to apply this? Like, let's look at let's look at athletes' um, internal rotation of their hip, and then say, okay. When is that a big risk factor for injury? Like if this athlete's landing in this position, but what, what happens if we do this? You know, and, and a lot of that's hypothetical. Like, and I'm trying to steal rotation through thoracic rotation or whatever it is to get that guy a little bit more closed as he goes down the mound. And then, you know, do you alter his foot position? Like there's so many, so many potential things, and a lot of it's uh, um, speculation at this, at this point. But... You know, in ten years, we're gonna have a lot, a lot more answers. So for me, it's just really exciting. Right. Yeah. Definitely. So where's uh, I guess where's your kind of, I guess uh, foresight in terms of, you know, what are you looking forward to in terms of research? I know you don't want to give any specifics here, but um, are you moving into a lot more kinematic studies? Are you looking more at, um, you know, physical limitations? What are what are you heading towards here? Um, a little bit of both. I mean, I'm really, in, I, I'd really like to do more work, you know, with expanding on that hip, the hip rotation range of motion study and how that you know, is affect how, how that affects kinematics. Um, 
looking more into strength as well, I think is, you know, I, I'm very, very applied with a lot of the stuff that I want to do. So it's really, you know, if people have deficits somewhere, is that leading to injuries? Are there, you know, injury prevention protocols that we can, you know, implement to improve mechanics? Um, I think things like that from a performance and injury prevention standpoint are what I'm most interested in. Yeah, I like that. And that, like I said, that's where we've been lacking for, in my estimation, for the longest period of time. Um, I mean, you'll see stuff in the past, like Job, a bunch of Job studies, whatever, the 60s and 70s studies, like you'll still get a lot of great information. And I think a lot of people look at, you know, just overlook it because it's old, but it's like you could pull a lot, a lot from those sorts of things. And then we almost went through a period of time where, in my mind, um, a lot of this research kind of dipped down, like a lot of those EMG studies that I think Andrews was involved in and Job was involved in where they're looking at uh, the EMG at different throwing intensities. That's really what we have to go on for that some of that stuff where they're saying, well, the, the EMG profile at 60% intensity is very similar to that at 95% intensity, which is great. But the things we, you know, we really need to see as well is, all right, um, you know, how did the kinematics change from those intensity profiles? And then also, you know, the other, the other thing is, okay, but the muscle contraction sequences were similar, but were the muscles actually working in a, in a similar manner? Um, so a lot of that stuff's very exciting, exciting for me, um, in the forefront. Yep. Still a lot to be done. We really got to bridge the gap. (laughs) Can we talk a little bit about, uh, the American Baseball Biomechanics Society? Right. So uh, ABBS was founded, gosh, I think about two years ago at the start of the pandemic. We wanted to create an organization where we can really merge coaching, baseball biomechanics, uh, the clinician side of things, athletic training, physical therapy, and really anybody else who is interested in baseball biomechanics and create a society where we bring everybody together and you know, we talk about a lot of these things that, you know, we're talking about right now. You know, how do we, how do we move forward? How do we use some of this technology? You know, there's a lot of technology coming out. Like, how do we validate it? Because a lot of, you know, a lot of people want to know, like, yeah, we've got this technology, but is it telling us what we think it says it's telling us? And is it accurate, reliable? Um, So we have a lot of discussions like that, but also providing, you know, continuing education type opportunities where we'll have, you know, different leaders in the field talk and um, virtually um, we haven't really had a chance to have a um, in-person conference unfortunately but we've tried to put out a lot of virtual um, content that you know people can go to and learn from some of the experts and you know come up with different research questions that you know you may not have the ability to do a research study but somebody in the group may be interested in you know helping you so we're really trying to um, and really bridge the gap between coaches, clinicians, and then the biomechanist. Um, try to come up with some of these studies that you know, need to be done, we know need to be done, but how do we bring the resources together to, you know, to do that, to execute? So that's, it's a really great society. Uh, membership is free. I think our website is baseballbiomechanics.org. I encourage, you know, anybody who's interested in baseball biomechanics to join um, it's a great group um, you can learn a lot of you know good information yeah it's phenomenal uh it's growing you're getting in at the at the base level of something that's going to be 
huge here in a few years and really necessary, um, to be honest. Uh, obviously, there's Sabre, S-A-B-R, and things like that as well. But um, in my mind, this is going to be a little bit um, more comprehensive and a little bit also more focused on what we really need to focus on. Um, and I've said it five times, but the biomechanics, which has been overlooked for so many years, um, and kind of dedicating a society to that, it, it was really, really necessary. I saw it. First time I saw it, I was like, got to do it. And this is something that, like, it's free. Get great information from, and then hopefully here soon, um, there'll be an in-person uh, in person uh, destination. Everyone can come together. And I'm interested to see some of the research and some of the ideas that come out of it. Um, but the validation stuff is really, really awesome for me because working in the private sector, that's, you know, that's stuff that I'm always interested in because it's always about getting the best possible information and technology at the lowest possible uh, cost. And as far as some of these things that are coming out that are really for the consumer market, um, you know, for the athletes, for the coaches, a lot of that stuff um, is really exciting because it can bring technology to those individuals. And is it research grade? No, but is it going to be able to give them um, at least some reliable uh, information or some valid information? That's what we want to definitely find out. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, definitely. And we have journal clubs as well. I think we're starting journal clubs this year. So we'll you know, take a couple articles that are either new or you know, thought-provoking at, at, at any given moment and you know, discuss those and you know, being able to have clinicians or coaches come and like, ask questions about, you know, about the science. They may not necessarily understand the biomechanics part, but you know, incorporating all of that to where you know, they can ask questions. We can get a lot of feedback on, okay, what, you know, what's the next study we need to do? How can we make a certain study better? To really benefit, you know, everybody else, and not just a biomechanist. Yeah, we really, we really need this uh, comprehensive approach. It's like we're saying we've seen the research on uh, pitch counts, we've seen the the research on rest levels, ice versus not ice. All the questions I get all the time because it's so popular. But it's like there's a whole spectrum. There's there's 20, 30, 40, 50 things that could potentially contribute to injury or potentially contribute to performance. And one big slice of the pie is how do you move and how do you pr produce force in the throw? And then how do you tolerate those loads? Um, and so that's, I like that that's where the research is starting to head because it's easy to look at, or I don't want to say easy, it's easier to look at pitch counts. It's easier to look at the number of games you played in a year, but it's, it's much more um, intensive to look into how do these athletes throw, what's the risk of injury, where do they put their body in three-dimensional space, and then also how do we, how do we choose the, the area of the, the sequence or the, the, the part of the throw that we're going to look at relative to another part. So um, a lot goes into that, a lot goes into that, but I think, you know, and that's what I did. I gave a little presentation yesterday to a bunch of um, youth guys, and we went through all this pitch count stuff. We went through all the uh, icing stuff, but then there was a little uh, there was a little thing about biomechanics being the key, and you got to move as efficiently as possible. So I I love that, and I want to thank you very much for coming on, uh, Dr. Plummer here. Uh, she's doing a lot of great research, um, has published quite a bit, and I encourage you guys to kind of peruse through 
uh, her research because she's got a lot that we did not even come close to covering here today. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. This was a great discussion and look forward to continued discussions. Yeah, absolutely, me as well, because I know that you have a lot of a lot of great projects uh, that are coming out here uh, in the next uh, few years and things like that. So we'll have to get get you back on and talk about some of the new revelations. Sounds great. Thank you. All right. I'm Max Wardell in the name of Overhead Athletics, signing off. <laughs>